Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you all. Yes. Well, uh, it's always great to be back with you at Eastside. How are you all doing this morning? Can we give some love for the worship team? That was amazing. <clears throat> we are, um, one of the fun things about having two congregations is that sometimes we get to uh, do a series together, and that's what we're kind of doing right now. So we flip-flop um, Mike's actually at Central right now preaching, Uh, so it's pretty sweet when we get to do that. And today I'm going to talk about Sabbath, of all things, which I don't know about you, but Sabbath, Sabbath has never been part of kind of my Christian tradition. Um, I, I actually didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't know what it was, and And as I became a Christian, I never heard about Sabbath. It's only been recently, I think, with the rise of technology always being on, that this concept of sort of redeeming this concept of Sabbath has kind of become popular again. But I want to suggest that that we need to rethink this this gift of Sabbath that God really gives us for bigger reasons than just um, because of technology or because of always being on. Uh, And and I want to suggest that Sabbath is one of these practices that in a moment like the moment we're in, it gives us that distinctive sort of quality that that allows us to both lean into Jesus so that he can transform us, but simultaneously it allows us to live a life in our culture that blesses the culture and also resists its idols, right? So it is both this faithful presence to be the people of God in this moment that stop and rest and worship in the rhythm of weekly work and rest. But it's also a prophetic witness in this culture to do that. And and really these practices that we have sort of adopted for the last five years or so come from trying to ask a much bigger question. That question that came sort of after 2016 uh, and beyond was, what does it mean to be the people of God now, right? Particularly in Portland, Oregon, in a culture that doesn't have a lot of space for faith, for Christianity, and we're, and we're supposed to be testifying and witnessing that Jesus is good news. And in Portland, it's like, no, that's not good news. And, and as I began to look at the scriptures, I realized that the, the people of God have been in these situations before. Situations where the culture 
maybe once validated their faith, at least validated aspects of their faith, and then no longer did. In fact, the people of God normally have been in those situations. When you go back and look at Judah being taken captive into exile, right, by Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember the book of Daniel and the prophet Jeremiah, when you're taken captive out of Judah into exile, you lose your king, you lose the temple, you lose your land, you lose your priest, you lose your language. How do you worship Yahweh without those things, right? Where do you take your goat to be sacrificed, right? Where do you do all that stuff? You don't have any of those things. And the goal of Nebuchadnezzar was not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted to enslave and punish and oppress people. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to assimilate Israel, right? Babylon was a superpower. It was wealthy. It was amazing. And he's like, just come and enjoy it. The Jews could live a middle-class lifestyle. They could build houses. They could do that. That's why Jeremiah's like, Settle down, build houses, marry, give your children in marriage, and, and seek the blessing of the city so you can prosper. God tells them this. But in, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, you just start intermarrying and you do these things, and in one generation you'll disappear. Israel should have never made it out of Babylon. They should have disappeared. But they didn't. And they didn't because they imagined a way to be the people of God in exile. Ironically, this is when they started obeying Sabbath. They never, if you read like the prophets, they never obey Sabbath. Which the only thing you have to do is do nothing. (laughs) But they can't do it. And in exile, they practice Sabbath. And in Babylon, which is a rat race where you buy and sell and you never stop and you're always on, they stopped. In Babylon, that's where you see the synagogue arise. And smaller groups of people showed up and they, they, they gathered around the text. This is where the office of the scribe shows up because they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. So they needed someone to teach the scriptures scribe and synagogue and Sabbath and all those things preserve their identity in Babylon. And so that 70 years go by and exiles return to the land. They figured out a way. They imagined it. Even though if someone said, well, how can we do this? We don't have, you know, a priest and we don't have... We, we can't make sacrifice, and we can't, there'd be so many, you know, naysayers. And I love when you read Jeremiah because God literally says, don't listen to the prophets because they're lying to you. And you know what the prophets were saying? We're going home. We're going home. It's going to be okay. We're going to take back Israel. We're going to make Israel great again, basically. <laughs> and he's like, no. We're not. He says, buy, buy some land, get married, settle down, build houses. You ain't going nowhere. But they figured it out. 
So what does it mean for us to imagine what it, what it means to be the people of God in our place, in our time, in a way that is both calls us into Jesus, that where we need our own transformation, and yet is also a witness to the world that blesses and pushes back against the idols. It's not only back in the Old Testament. There are other times in the New Testament, uh, times in church history, where the church is always having to reimagine what does it mean to be the people of God now? There's this great story of Gregory the Great. He is one of the popes after Rome falls, right? Around the 450 or 550, 450, I think. Well, I don't know when. Anyways, it's around then. Rome has fallen. And there is this dude named Gregory who becomes, he gets into politics when he's 30, and he leaves politics, feels called by God. He gets ordained as a priest, and he actually becomes like a, a monk. And, and uh, he, he builds these seven like monasteries, and then eventually he becomes pope, and he becomes a pope that cleans house, Right. He removes the unworthy priest. He forbade taking money for services. He empties the papal treasury to ransom prisoners and slaves uh, and persecuted Jews and, and used it for the victims of plague and famine. And so he is a very different kind of pope. But this is during the Dark Ages, where Protestants, we don't really have anything good to say about the Dark Ages. We think it went like uh, Gospels, Acts, and then Martin Luther, right? Like 1,500 years, the church just, we don't know what happened. But the church survived for 1,500 years somehow, and historians in the last, let's say, 30 years have actually uncovered some extremely fascinating things of how the church sort of handled the mission in that moment. And Gregory is one of these people. Sarah Williams, who teaches up in Regent, is just brilliant and has brought a lot of this out. But the church is in this tenuous time, right, because... Rome has been sacked by the Goths and the Visigoths, and the Goths are not like the Goths you're thinking about, like emo, and like the, the, these are like dangerous sort of uh, barbarian-type people. And, and they're, they're these Germanic people who play a role in the, the sacking of Rome. And while that's happening, you also have these Lombard tribes who are working their way down Italy and they are just slaughtering people as they go. It's hard for us to imagine this day and age, right? Slaughtering, meaning they show up, they kill everybody, and they enslave the children. Like, that's, that's the world they live in. And, and if you're a monk who lives in a monastery during that time, what would you do? I'd probably like hang out in the monastery. Just be like, oh, it's so beautiful. Look at the gardens. And, and I would avoid these people. But that's not what the church does. It's in the midst of this situation that the church goes on the offensive with evangelism. 
right? It's in the midst of that situation that Gregory grabs this guy named Augustine, not Augustine that you're thinking of, a different Augustine, um, and, and he gets some of the people who speak the Lombard language, and he goes into cross-cultural missions, and he begins to share the gospel with these Lombard tribal leaders, and it's not the kind of gospel that you're thinking, like it's different, and there's a lot of critique about this, but during this wave of evangelism in the 6th, 7th, and 8th century, we are, we are seeing all of these tribal leaders move from warring and slaughtering and killing to becoming baptized Christians. Now, we may see it as this top-down sort of colonial thing or whatever, but they, they have an authentic conversion that takes place. They go from slaughtering people and enslaving people to worshiping Jesus. Well, what happens then is that Augustine, who works for Gregory and all of his pastors, start writing letters to the Pope. And there are letters that are like about pastoring these crazy Lombards. And they're like, there's a lot of issues going on with these Lombard people. Like, and, and a lot of them are around sex, ironically, right? Like, what happens when a witch makes a man impotent? Can the wife leave him, right? And Gregory's like, what? And, and just question after question of them trying to navigate this new world, right? And Gregory does this most amazing thing. He says... Don't worry about sex. Work, teach them about time. Teach them about the sacredness of time. These pastoral letters that are sent to them, uh, who have all these questions about all these issues, about the here and the now, and what are we going to do? And what Gregory does is he says, concentrate on time. Give it sacredness. Show them that God is in charge of the world, that there is a beginning and an end, that history is going somewhere, and that God is doing this. And the reason that's brilliant is because in a culture that is bent on vengeance and warring, they always lived in the now, right? If you steal my goat, what I do is I go over and I kill you and I burn down your house. It's always about what's happening in the immediate and Gregory saw a connection between that lifestyle and the need to be discipled into a time beyond the moment where you could start to imagine that God ran the world, not you. That the self was not the most immediate thing that was of importance but God was doing something bigger. And so they create this thing called the Christian calendar where God is at work, there's a beginning, and then Jesus breaks into history and redeems us, and history is moving towards this fulfillment, and the kingdom is coming. They keep working with this. Advent and Lent and Easter and Pentecost, where all these things that are very foreign to us still, 
But what that does is it locates emotions like waiting and longing and revenge and lust and hate and anger in a larger story of faithfulness where Christ rules over time and place. And they find a way to be faithful, not perfect, but distinctive in their identity as the people of God. In each case, rather than picking apart each issue that rises up in the culture, what do we believe about this? What are we gonna fix this? How are we gonna address this? They went deeper into the fabric and the formation of how to imagine life in the world they found themselves and what does it mean that Christ is the ruler of this world in this moment. Whether it was Daniel and Babylon and the exiles or Gregory and the Goths and the Lombards. And time, it's really interesting, is always a central feature, right? It's always a central feature in understanding and reframing what it means to be faithful to God. If you think about how we view time, it really does shape how we see the world and therefore how we kind of engage and act in the world. If we think about life, why am I here? How you answer that shapes what you do. If why I'm here is just to conquer and take what's theirs and make it mine, then that's going to shape what I do tomorrow. It shapes how I understand history. What does the past mean? Are these simply stories of our people and legends and myths of warriors that I want to be great like them? It shapes what I think about the future. Where is history heading? And is dying in battle as a warrior all I can hope for? And then that is going to shape the personal and the corporate. How I live and understand and imagine time is getting shaped by that understanding. Well, when you think about time in postmodern America, right? In American culture, what is our conception of time? It's very much shaped by the self and the market. It's... it's Time is money, and it's my time. And it's not just a catchphrase. It actually is a guiding principle. Have you ever been in a meeting and been, I'm never going to get that hour of my life back? (laughs) Have you ever been in a sermon and thought that? Maybe you're thinking that actually right now, right? (laughs) Time management books rule the bestsellers list, and any of them that you look at will always talk about time and money because we are a people believe that time our time is quantifiable by a price and we believe that our life an hour of my life is worth a certain price and we put an ideal on that and so the idea of time is money or and that money or worth being me, me time, we've never heard that before, I need me time, it's something that no one has enough of in American culture. 
with everything I need to accomplish, with everything I need, want to participate in, with everything my kids want to be participating in, with everything I want to be entertained by, we have been shaped by life at hyperspeed. With an overabundance of demands and opportunities packaged in a nonstop stream of information delivered on always on devices, right? Now, the pandemic did something. The pandemic caused us to stop for this extended period of time so that even you, you heard people who had no concept of God say things like, I mean, I, I, I kind of don't want to go back all the way to where I was before. Uh, I kind of enjoyed spending time with friends and family and having that time. But we also learned that the world was not ours to control. And that was terrifying. Because pre-pandemic, we actually thought we controlled the world, right? And things like, um, you know, shipping lanes and things like this that we were like, what are you talking about? Well, my toilet paper should be here when I want it. And we realized we're not in control of the world, which is a very scary thing to realize for people who believe that they run the world. And many people have a more pessimistic and anxious view of the world now. And so here we are, the people of God, right? 2023, this is our moment. And for us now, we get to learn from our past and face our moment boldly. A world that we can't control and a culture where time has been shaped by money and the hyper-individualized self, we get to let the Spirit show us how to be the Daniels and the Gregories of our moment. And what we've been convinced of for the last many years is that the way of faithfulness in our current moment is to do what the church has always done, to imagine a way to be the people of God that is faithful and prophetic because it centers us on Jesus. And the practices do that for us. They do what the church calendar did for Gregory and synagogue and Sabbath did for the exiles. And so Sabbath is one of those things because just like for the exiles and just like for Gregory, it's a central feature in I in identifying who we are as God's people. Sabbath is a way that we begin to imagine time under the reign and the rule of Jesus, not the market or the self. Sabbath is a way where we are not under the rule of our passions or our desires that demand that we act or react in this moment but that we are, we are under the rule of Jesus, and because time is under the rule of Jesus, it opens up space for us to, to do things that are not urgent in the moment, to do things like wait and pray and resist and long and repent and abstain and even suffer if we had to. 
In a world where time is money and there is never enough of it, so we are always scrambling anxiously for more or hoarding what we have to get immediate gratification for, we are the people who don't have to get back to work, to always have enough, to always clamor for more. We are a people called to practice a rhythm of time that believes that this is God's world, God who has been at work in the past, God who is at work in the present, running the world so we don't have to, and is moving this world towards a future where he is redeeming all of creation. We are not under the bondage of the anxious now. Because God is the God who brings new mercies every morning. God is the God who told us not to worry about tomorrow. He's the God who runs the world so we can stop and rest and Sabbath. Right? And this is not apathetic. In other words, we're not, we're not just laying around... Sabbathing. We're not apathetic in God's world. We participate with God. We are, we are getting to steward this creation with him, but we are not burdened by pretending we are God. Because we make great worshipers, but we make horrible gods. But we always try to be God. That, that does create stress when you are an infinite person. When you're human and you're trying to be God, there's a reason you're stressed. That's all I'm saying. So we work and we rest, we work and we rest, we work and we rest in this rhythm that dances to the beat of creation and creation dances to the praise of its creator and we work towards rest we don't just rest so we can work more you see the difference of that sabbath means that we are working with sabbath in mind we are working towards sabbath we're not just work 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 crash so that we can work 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 in a world that is always running always on and never shuts up the church god's people get to stop we get to turn off. We are free to turn off so that we can worship the God who stands outside of time but has joined us in time so that he can be with us for all time. I'll say that again. God's people, right, we get to stop and turn off and rest to worship the God who stands outside of time but joined us in time so that we can be with him for all time. And this weekly rhythm of work and Sabbath begins to connect us to this larger story. It begins to form us. Today matters because it's connected 
to the sacred rhythm of yesterday and tomorrow. It's connected to Advent and Lent and Easter and Pentecost with every week marked by a holy pause of Sabbath. And each day part of a story that is connected and going somewhere overseen by a loving father. Sabbath shapes how we understand time, and how we understand time shapes and forms us. Life means I am here to be loved by God and to love God in return and to love others and proclaim his glory. That's why I'm here. And history is that this is God's world. This is his story, and we get to participate in it. And the future is moving towards the fulfillment of his purposes and his kingdom coming in the fullness, which means personally and corporately, time is a gift from a gracious God given to respond to his love, to love one another, to share Christ's salvation, and to participate with him. And what that means is then you can learn to wait and long and persevere and forgive and do all the things that us barbarians before Christ can't do because we only have now. Sabbath is central to reshaping our hearts and our minds that have been discipled by Time is money, and time is mine. And that can only happen if we begin to practice it together, right? That it's not a solo act. It's when we come in here together and we worship and we stop, and it begins to shape us for holiness, not a holiness that's like uh, boring, you know, but a holiness that dances and plays, and, and creates with God. And there's three ways that I think Sabbath forms us. And I just want to look at those really quickly with a few different verses. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, I love this verse where Jesus says, Then he said to him, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. One of the biggest mistakes we get is asking, how do we practice Sabbath? Uh, it, it, it's, it, I feel like Americans, man, we are so good at taking something that was so simple and making it so hard, right? It's like, love your neighbor. Ah, who's my neighbor? How do I do that? Like, I don't get it. It's like, rest, stop working and rest. Whoa, like, how, what does that mean? It's like, stop. <laughs> Just stop. Turn off your phone. Turn on, like, play, like, have fun, rest, whatever. And, and our tendency is to turn it into something, like, that, that is a rule that we have to follow. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, that's what it's become. 
that it went from being that prophetic thing in exile that, that created an identity for God's people, and it's now become a hurdle, a religious hurdle that people are trying to jump over. And Jesus is, shows up and starts just destroying all of those religious hurdles. And when the Pharisees are losing their mind, right, because they are great at keeping the hurdles up, Jesus is like, this was actually made for them, not them for it. Like, we didn't create Sabbath and go, okay, there's Sabbath. Now let's create little men and make them act right to serve Sabbath. God said, no, I created humans, and then I gave them Sabbath. Sabbath was made for them. So if God gives us something like that, well, why would we not want that? Why would we go, no, 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 I just want to stay on this rat race. I always want to keep working. I want to keep working. And one of the most embarrassing things as a pastor is like most pastors are really proud at being workaholics, thinking it's spiritual, but it's not spiritual. Because what we're essentially saying is we run the church, not God, right? And the same would be true for everything that we kind of touch, right? So we need to be able to go, let, let this, like it doesn't mean that you have to get it or understand or have it figured out, just stop. Just start by stopping and let that shape you that will teach you you don't have to figure out anything just quit stop once a week be curious pay attention and after a while you'll learn more about God than you ever thought you you could right two other ones I want you to look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11 Moses gives this, brings this to Israel at Sinai. This is the command. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Do your work. But on the seventh day, the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not do any work, neither your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed it and made it holy. There is something about Sabbath that if, if at first, if we get the first part right, that we throw ourselves on the Jesus and stop and say, Christ, form me by time, by this rhythm of time. Work and stop. And Jesus, you are the Lord of Sabbath, so I'm going to trust you. And if we get it right, then we begin to live within this natural rhythm of creation that God put in this holy pause that he himself rested in. And if we get that right, then we, we begin to align ourselves with this holy rhythm of creation. God worked it this way. And, and we begin to receive ourselves back on Sabbath. 
where we remember, yeah, okay, God, this is your world. It's not ours. And you made it so that we can enjoy it. So we're going to stop and pray and play and recenter ourselves on the one who does control the world. And that central practice, I think, for the post-pandemic life that, that really is good news to Portland would be a people who stopped and rested freely, that weren't anxious. Right, that said, there. That I'm not just gonna. I'm just not stressed. I stopped. I rested. I do it every week. They'd be like, "Why? What? How come you didn't text me back?" <laughs> the next verse, last one, Deuteronomy five twelve. Moses again, but. But at the end, as he gets ready to die and, and writes this book, he comes back to the Sabbath, and he gives the same thing at first. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God. Remember it. Six days labor. Stop. But the seventh day is holy. Don't work. Not you, not your son, not your daughter, nor your servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigners. Remember, but here's Why? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, your God has commanded that you, earn, that you observe the Sabbath day. It's fascinating that Moses then in Deuteronomy comes back and gives the why as the fact that they were slaves in Egypt. You know, in Pharaoh's empire, no one's Sabbath. There's no rest in Pharaoh's empire. It's more bricks, more bricks, more bricks. And we live in an empire very much like Pharaoh's, where the demand for more results in the poor having no time for rest. This always-on demandingness of American time taxes our soul, and so it's here where Sabbath becomes a prophetic announcement. That in the midst of this empire, there is a people who have been set free from Pharaoh's sweatshop, where we can stop, where we can rest. We can turn off our devices. We can eat meals with friends. We can dance in, in the desert because we have a God that provides a feast in the desert to enjoy our God, to get ourselves back, and to rest in his grace because our king runs the world 24-7 so we can rest. Amen. I want us to take communion now. So if you, if you have your communion, your holy chalice, if you don't have one, could you raise your hand and someone will bring you one, I am told. I think they're going to bring you one. Keep your hand up. The idea of Sabbath um, 
really at its heart comes out of the gospel. The reason that it's possible for us to Sabbath is because Jesus, who lived outside of time, came into time to do his work. And his work was to finish what the Father called him to do. And he accomplished that work on the cross. That work was to die for you and to die for me. And as he hung there on the cross, he shouted out the word tetelestai, which means it is finished, paid in full, literally paid in full. And after he finished his work, he rested in the grave. He Sabbathed in the grave on the Sabbath day. And on the day after the Sabbath, he broke free from the grave and brought forth new creation, right? So that you and I wouldn't have to strive, wouldn't have to work, but that we could enter into his rest. That we could walk in the rhythm of his spirit and his grace. So that he could be our resurrected king. And that we could be free from the world. Free from our sin. Free from the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And so he invites us to take our Sabbath rest in him. To believe that the one who finished his work and said, enter my rest, is the one that today we stop and worship. Stop and remember. Stop and receive. Because of his broken body and his shed blood was our finished work. Because he gave it to us. And so this morning as we take this, we receive the rest of Jesus. And the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord. Would you pray with me? As the Lord is maybe spoken to you today, of your 
this invitation to trust him with your life, to let him be the king of your time. The invitation is to step out and trust him by stopping, right? To enter that holy Sabbath, that holy rest. And I would just invite you, if that's you today, and you want to commit this morning and say, Lord, I want to enter. I believe, but help my unbelief. Would you just stand where you are so we could pray for you this morning? Would you just step into this practice? Amen. Father God, we just pray this morning that you would, by your spirit, come in power into our lives and set us free. That you would untangle us from anxiety and control. That you would untangle us from the places that we feel like uh, we need to be on and that you would set us free to enter this holy, holy rest. And Jesus, I thank you that you have empowered us to do that because you are the one by your death and your resurrection have given us the freedom to enter into the holy rest of your grace. So come, Lord, and shape us. Give us the passion and the courage to begin to practice this weekly pause that would be distinctive as a people, that we could reimagine in this moment what it means to be your people that would preserve us and protect us, but also prophetically, God, it would announce to the world that you are king and that you are savior. And there is a gospel that brings new life. So we invite you, Jesus, to meet us now in worship. We pray in your name.